Hello, and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown. Today is Wednesday, August the 24th, and it is National Peach Pie Day. So if you're having something savory for lunch, make sure you include a little bit of dessert. Uh, my name is Tom Hollingsworth, and I am happy to be here once again with you. And joining me is a real peach of a storage person, Mr. Stephen Foskett. Stephen, welcome back to the show. It's great to be here. But Tom, I am a northerner, so I'm not celebrating Peach Pie Day. I am, in fact, celebrating National Waffle Day. Well, to each their own, whatever your favorite treat might be. We have a lot of treats for you in the news. Um, speaking of pie, or ply, as the case may be, our friends over at PlyOps are plying their expertise in SSD acceleration into a brand new round of funding. The storage startup has raised a new $100 million round to bring the total funding that they've taken to $215 million. Also coming along with this news is a little bit of a realignment to kind of focus on the U.S. market, and uh, they've reduced a few overlapping staff positions. Um, this new round comes after PlyOps took $65 million last year to continue development on their XTP platform. Now, Stephen, where does this round position PlyOps when it comes to the future of where they're wanting to take their solution? Yeah, this is an interesting story simply because, uh, you know, PlyOps is one of those companies out there that has been part of this new trend in distributed storage that is a little bit different. Um, for a long time, storage was all about the media. Then it was all about storage arrays. Uh, and the current trend is more distributed storage solutions where you have a bit of the storage array in every server. Uh, that being said, I think from the outside, it may look like there's a lot of similarity between these companies and the sort of uh, data protection card, storage card kind of market, but there, there really isn't. They are very, very different. And uh, PlyOps's solution, as we heard about a couple of times last year at Tech Field Day, is really an interesting one since it uh, brings data very close to the server, but it also brings data to the server in a new way in terms of uh, offering up key and value store and things like that. So this is really a different kind of technology and one that has obviously gotten some excitement in the industry. Uh, I think it's worth pointing out that uh, among the companies that are investing in PlyOps are Intel Capital. And uh, anything Intel's investing, you can bet they're investing because they see it as a strategic fit overall for their uh, uh, technology uh, picture. And so, yes, this is uh, an interesting story because uh, PlyOps just doubled their funding. Yes, it's an interesting story because they have an interesting technology. But I think it's also an interesting story because it shows that even after Pensando was acquired by AMD, and um, you know, Intel has their own uh, IPU, DPU, XPU strategy, uh, and some of this stuff is happening over at uh, NVIDIA as well. Um, it shows that there's still space in the market for a novel solution, because frankly, otherwise uh, they wouldn't be investing in it. So uh, check out PlyOps, uh, keep an eye on them. They're uh, actually uh, still rolling here and uh, they must be doing something right. So I can't wait to see where they go with this technology. Moving on, Tom, uh, let's talk a little bit about insurance because nothing's more exciting than insurance, right? Uh, insurance giant Lloyd's of London has decided that things can't be insured. Uh, well, some things. Uh, in this case, a memo from the company indicated that Lloyd's will no longer be covering cyber attacks by nation states. Uh, as the largest underwriter of insurance companies in the world, this effectively means that no insurance company is going to be covering cyber attacks by nation states. 
Lloyd says that uh, incidents from uh, these cyber warfare operations, declared or otherwise, are not included anymore. And it would require that companies have a robust capability to fight attacks and attribute them, uh, whether they're nation state or individual attacks. Tom, what does this mean for cyber insurers and cyber crime? It means that there are going to be a lot of people who are about to be left hanging out. And I think it's funny because we, we see jokes all the time, like on Facebook, about if you read the warning label on the back of a on the back of an aerosol can, it says like, do not incinerate puncture and then throw into the back of a Ford Pinto. And you're like, wow, that is an oddly specific warning. Usually that's because somebody required it to be there. And so what happens is, is that Lloyd's of London, which, by the way, if you don't know, Lloyd's of London insures your insurance companies. So like 76 of the biggest insurance companies on the planet are all Lloyd's customers. So effectively, they underwrite the underwriters. Lloyd's came out and said, we are no longer going to underwrite insurance policies that don't explicitly carve out an exception for cyber war. Now, what do they define as cyber war? Well, it would be the impact of a nation state hacking somebody, whether it's a declared war or not, or if it's a cyber attack that impairs the operations of a nation state. Think back to all of the big attacks that we've seen over the course of the last two years. How many of them have been attributed to groups that are backed by nation states? More than you might think. So this is where Lloyd's is drawing a big line in the sand. Now, we all know that the cyber insurance market is probably a little overblown right now because a lot of companies rushed to get these policies in place and then realized that this thing is basically a house of cards on quicksand because it's not stable. It's not working at all. There was very little uh, remediation necessary. Like you need to get better firewalls. You need to upgrade your policies, whatever. And when they had to start paying out, they got in a lot of trouble because the main purpose of an insurance company is to not pay. And now they're stuck. And it's one thing if it's a group of punk kids like Lapsus who just wants to invade your system and steal your source code and tag everything and be like, we were here. It's another thing when it's the North Koreans or the Chinese or the Russians or the Iranians or pretty much any other nation state group that we've seen over the past two, three years. Because um, I, look, I think about it like the, the door lock uh, methodology. Door locks don't exist to keep out determined criminals. They exist to keep out the casual criminals. Because a determined criminal will get into your house, and that's a, that's a nation state. If North Korea wants to hack you, they will hack you. They have unlimited resources. They have unlimited time. And if you are the focus, they're going to find a way. The question is whether or not you detect whether, whether if they got in. And so Lloyd's is effectively saying, if you can't attribute that this attack didn't come from a nation state, we're going to assume that it did, and we're not going to pay off your, your policy, which means you either need to get better defenses or you need to pay more money to get a policy that does cover this. Either way, Lloyd's wins. They either don't have to pay out or they get a lot more money in case they do. And I think that this is going to change the way that we look at stuff. And there's already a lot of discussion amongst uh, security professionals out there of how, how this is going to change the entire cyber insurance market. Because if half of the attacks that we're starting to see are being attributed to nation state or nation state backed actors, that means that half of the policies that we're going to pay out no longer will. And that's going to cause a lot of investment in technology. All right, Stephen, MinIO is teaming up with Intel this week to increase uh, performance on their object storage platform. Now, Intel's Disruptor initiative is focused on taking modern architectures, like the one offered by MinIO, and working with Intel to adapt it to AI and ML workloads. The goal is to reduce bottlenecks and increase performance across the board, utilizing some of those Intel innovations. 
Now, Min.io has been a growing player in the storage market, especially in the cloud, as we've talked about here on the rundown recently with uh, some of the announcements that they've made. Um, is this going to be a partnership that's going to allow the companies to work together to enable some great new future for Min.io, Stephen? Yeah, for me, the interesting angle on this story is, uh, frankly, not as much about Min.io as it is about Intel. So uh, as we recently discussed in the uh, forthcoming uh, server architecture white paper from Gestalt IT, which you'll be able to download from gestaltit.com real soon now, uh, the reason that Intel still offers such a compelling server platform is not because they have the most cores or the most uh, gigahertz. It's because they have the most accelerators. And that's what this story is all about. MinIO is essentially leveraging some of the specialized accelerators like AVX 512 that are found in the Intel third generation Xeon scalable processor line to accelerate some of the operations that they're doing in terms of distributed storage and uh, checksums and uh, you know th that sort of thing. And they found that it's uh, accelerating the software enough that it's worth crowing about. Now, this is, as I said, really the, the key differentiator for Intel. In other words, if people use those accelerator instructions, then Intel's uh, server CPUs are way out ahead of competitors from uh, companies like AMD or, uh, of course, ARM. But if people don't use those specialized accelerators, well, then x86 is just a sort of a generic platform. So it uh, behooves Intel to try to encourage ISVs like MinIO to leverage those advanced instructions, not only to accelerate their software, but also to increase the reliance on Intel's hardware. And that's just what happened here. I think it's worth noting that uh, Intel Capital is an investor in MinIO, and I'm sure that that had a little bit to do with it. But frankly, if you're a software developer and a specific piece of hardware offers you much, much better performance, Heck, wouldn't you use it too? Moving on, Tom, uh, to a familiar name, uh, Aruba, a Hewlett Packard Enterprise company, has a new certification in their cap. The Edge Connect Enterprise SD-WAN platform is the first to be certified under ICSA Secure SD-WAN program. This program was designed to provide neutral third-party testing for SD-WAN solutions and will grow to include more offerings from other vendors in the future. Edge Connect Enterprise is the former Silver Peak platform that Aruba acquired back in 2020 and that we saw uh, quite a lot of at the uh, Atmosphere conference this year. Tom, is this going to be important for Aruba's SD-WAN plans? Yeah, I think it will be because ICSA is generally regarded as one of the, the trusted third parties that you can count on to provide reasonable assurances that things do what they say on the box. Um, ICSA has had a huge uh, firewall program for a number of years. And if you don't think that that's important, I want you to look on any of the electronic devices in your, your house and look for that little circle with the UL in it. Underwriters Laboratories is really an important way to know that you're going to plug the thing in and it's not going to shock you. If you think to yourself, well, isn't everything UL listed? No, no, it's not actually. Um, there's a lot of electronics that are starting to come out that are not UL listed. And why does that matter in the SD-WAN space? Well, ICSA is effectively UL for security devices. Um, you know, uh, a lot of companies tout the fact that they've passed this rigorous certification program and verified that their functionality is is as expected and that they don't have any glaring holes. Um, a lot of companies won't even allow things to be installed that are not ICSA certified. Now, the SD-WAN program is new, 
because, you know, obviously with it being a relatively new technology compared to the venerable packet filtering firewall, uh, they had to write a robust testing platform to be able to ensure that these things passed. And Aruba was one of the first companies to submit uh, Edge Connect Enterprise, rebranded Silver Peak, to ensure that it meets these standards. So I'm sure that, you know, in the few, next few months, we're probably going to see some other companies coming out with that. But Aruba does get, get to say that they were first, and uh, they do get to uh, hang their hat on that for a little bit. I'm sure that that's going to help them in some of their, their future deals. Um, like you said, we did get a chance to uh, to see this at uh, Rube Atmosphere this year. In fact, I wrote up a little something about uh, Edge Connect that you can check out on gestaltit.com uh, that has a lot of interesting um, aspects that would be important for people who are looking to make that jump to SD-WAN or, or SASE, as the case may be, um, because the way that we're doing enterprises has changed significantly. And I think by throwing the weight of a third-party certification platform Behind that, I think it is important to give people peace of mind as they decide on what they're going to be implementing. All right, Stephen, uh, Storepool announced the latest version of their solution this week. Uh, we're up to version 20, and it includes support for accessing NVMe over TCP without a client or host program needed. Um, that means increased performance over the NVMe over Fabric offerings that are out there on the market. It also now runs on AWS because it's looking to help increase performance for things like online transaction processing and tra transactional databases that need a lot of IOPS to function properly. Um, Stephen, I know that you had a chance to sit down and talk with the people from Storepool to learn a little bit more about this. So what do you think about it? I think this is a really interesting story, Tom, not for what it is, but uh, kind of for what it isn't. So let's talk about that. Now, Storepool, uh, as I said, there's a lot of different ways of, of presenting storage to a host. And uh, Storepool is one of the distributed storage solutions out there. But this company has always been uh, razor focused on basically building a uh, software based way to distribute st storage uh, using some host based intelligence. Um, over time, what has happened is that uh, companies have started to look for uh, basically specific solutions to specific product needs. And that's what uh, version 20 is all about in my mind. So let's take a look at some of these features. Number one, they, they support NVMe over TCP now. Well, there are other companies that are NVMe distributed storage companies. So what's the difference here? Well, the idea is that this is not a uh, ultra fast, you know, NVMe uh platform. The idea is that this is a full featured storage platform that has NVMe as a protocol. So again, this kind of goes to the key differentiators of Storepool, that they're a full featured storage uh, platform, not focused on like blazing speed. Uh, not that they're slow, but that's not what they're optimized for. They're optimized for adding basically all those enterprise storage features that people like. The next thing uh, that kind of leads off of that is that Storepool can run in AWS. Again, this is not going to be something you're going to buy in the marketplace because, frankly, this thing is going to be pretty big and pretty expensive. But that being said, if uh, you've got a ton of data up there and you really need a way to do it with high performance, uh, much, much faster than anything that AWS offers with, for example, EBS, uh, you needed a solution. Well, now they've got one. And in fact, uh, from what I'm hearing, this was actually kind of co-developed alongside uh, Amazon's uh, own staff to offer to their whale customers a uh, high-performance storage solution in uh, AWS. The other thing that they're adding is uh, NFS access. And again, 
this is one of those things where, you know, if you look out from the outside, you might say, whoa, does this mean Storepool is going to be competing with all those file NFS distributed file servers? No, that's not what they're doing here. They're just offering another on-ramp. And uh, I'm going to guess that this is probably something that some customers needed and they probably added it just to suit the needs of those particular customers. Again, this is uh, going to sort of sit on top of Storepool and allow you to still use a lot of the core features like snapshots and so on, uh, but present the data using a standard NFS protocol. So overall, I would say that this is an incremental improvement of Storepool. But again, if we look really closely, I think what we can see is this shows that Storepool is um, responding to the needs of customers, which means that Storepool has a lot of really big, interesting customers maybe just customers they can't really talk about. All right, Stephen, well, we had a story we wanted to take a closer look at this week. It, it's about the chip market and uh, it's about Qualcomm. You know, we've talked a lot about Qualcomm in the past on the rundown, but they are trying to jump back into the server CPU market. You may wonder, well, why are they doing that? Well, it's because they're building on the acquisition of Nuvia last year. We talked about this on the rundown. Uh, you may remember that Nuvia was founded by some former Apple engineers who decided that they wanted to port ARM into the data center. Well, at first, it looked like the Nuvia acquisition was actually going to get respun into making chips for laptops and mobile devices, which is Qualcomm's bread and butter. But now Qualcomm is starting to look at the possibility of moving back into the server market. Now, you probably know who Qualcomm is, and if you don't, you're definitely using them because they're one of the largest system-on-a-chip manufacturers out there and they make uh, packages for a number of mobile phones and tablets and a lot of other things. But it looks like the ARM CPU market, especially in the server side, is starting to heat up. And we've seen a lot of stories about companies that are developing ARM CPUs for servers. We've seen a lot of news about cloud providers offering ARM instances to run software. So the question is, is it time for a new player to enter the market and upset that balance? And is Qualcomm the right company to do that? Yeah, that's, I think, the key question right there, Tom. hundred uh, percent agree. Uh, as a lot of folks in the tech industry know, uh, the rise of ARM in the uh, desktop and laptop market has been phenomenal thanks to the work of Apple primarily. Uh, the rise of ARM in the server and cloud space has maybe been a little bit slower and quieter, but it's really taking hold. As we've seen with uh, Amazon's uh, Graviton processors, uh, they offer a tremendous, tremendous value for the money and, and really good performance overall. We've also talked quite a lot on the rundown about Ampere and their server CPU offerings that are based on ARM. Uh, and in fact, Ampere's uh, Ultra Max and Ampere One uh, offer the most cores that you can get in a socket these days. And if that's what you're looking for, which is frankly what a lot of uh, web solutions uh, are looking for, uh, it's a really good solution. Um, I will give a little shout out to my friends over at Serve the Home as well. They've been uh, looking at the Huawei High Silicon Kongpeng ARM server uh, uh, over there, which you can't get in the US, but it's really interesting to kind of see what's happening in China and what's powering a lot of the uh, Chinese internet uh, solutions uh, with multi-core multi ARM servers as well. Now, as you look at this uh, market, you can see that uh, cloud providers are creating their own ARM servers and that Ampere has really focused in on special purpose ARM servers for special purpose solutions. They're not really trying to build a, a general uh, purpose uh, ARM server uh, chip at this point. 
Uh, there have been other attempts to do that, but most of them haven't really worked out. Frankly, x86, uh, thanks to Intel and AMD, is working pretty well. Uh, even the NVIDIA ARM server CPUs that we've seen, uh, like the NVIDIA Grace, uh, those are more special purpose for AI processing. So uh, the Nuvia group was interesting because they were basically a, a bunch of people who had worked on those really phenomenal Apple uh, chips and were now trying to build a server platform out of them. When Qualcomm bought them, as you mentioned, the uh, speculation was that they were going to pivot more toward mobile uh, device chips because, frankly, that's Qualcomm's bread and butter. But now we hear that they're heading back into the server market. I suspect that what Qualcomm is going to do here is they're, they're going to put together a, a, a general purpose ARM server platform to compete with the likes of uh, x86 um, rather than a special purpose one to complete, compete with Graviton or Ampere. Uh, if that's what they're doing, then um, I don't know that that's going to really work out all that well because it hadn't worked out in the past. On the other hand, if they're trying to put together a special one for uh, cloud computing to compete with Ampere, well, that's great too. But there again, how big is that market? And Ampere is, already has such a great lead in that market. You know, is there really space for another, another player? I'm really not sure what's going to happen here, but um, you know, it, it brings more questions than answers in my opinion. I think you're right. And part of the problem is asking the questions of, was Nuvia's design philosophy so incompatible with what Qualcomm was already offering as kind of their standard package that it just couldn't be integrated? And so now they're trying to squeeze a little bit more blood out of that turnip in the hopes that it doesn't look like a failed acquisition. That's debatable. You know, we're, we're always, anyone can ask that question of an acquisition that they make. But I think the interesting fact is, that, as you pointed out, Stephen, you know, you, you're kind of fighting against the general purpose x86, which is a known quantity versus the very specific ARM uh, offerings from companies like Ampere. Where's the middle ground between those two? And I actually think that the middle ground comes in the form of ARM, but not necessarily the CPU version. When you look at all of the things that we've been adding into servers now that effectively act as auxiliary processing units, whether it's the GPU, the DPU, the IPU, the XPU, whatever you want to call it, those devices are starting to offload necessary processing tasks from the general CPU. So maybe Qualcomm is thinking to themselves, well, if the CPU that's on board doesn't need to have a massive amount of cores or have ridiculously high performance, maybe that's the sweet spot where we can partner with some of these companies and kind of get into that market and maybe offer a lower cost solution. The catch is, is that all of those little innovations that we've been talking about, the DPU, the IPU, the GPU, whatever, they all come from companies who have a vested interest in adding extra lines of business to support their existing CPUs. Intel is going to sell you an IPU and now a GPU. NVIDIA is good at GPUs, have bought Mellanox to offer IPUs, and they've been working very closely to add ARM processors. And then AMD is, is kind of in the middle there as well. So I think that what's happening is, is that Qualcomm is expecting some of their I don't know what you want to call it, maybe their uh, experience in making these system on a chip designs and thinking, well, it can't be that much harder to build it for a server. But you're not running a device based on how much heat it generates, how much battery power it consumes, how tiny you can get it. The world is your oyster. And I think that Qualcomm is going to get stuck in this, this old line of thinking where it's like, well, we're just going to keep making these little tiny things. And I don't know, maybe we'll make half-size servers, but that's not going to be something valuable to people because nobody's thinking at a server level now. They're thinking at a rack level or a cluster level, or in some cases, even you know sections of a data center. 
They they care about raw performance. They care about, you know, IOPS and CPU cycles and memory availability and things like that. And I think that maybe this is a little bit of fallout from the fact that they tried to get bought by Broadcom a few years ago, and that actually ended up getting blocked. And so maybe Qualcomm is realizing that if they want to stay off of that acquisition target list, they need to develop some other kind of additional line of business that makes them an unsavory target. Now, I don't necessarily know that this is the way to do it. And I worry that if this doesn't pan out for them, that just makes them more likely to get acquired because now the company that's doing the buying is going to see them at a valuable discount because now they have to absorb the losses from the Nuvia acquisition and figure out how they're going to amortize those over the course of time. And nothing makes the sharks swim a little faster than the taste of blood in the water. Yeah, I, I really just don't see how this thing works out. And, um, you know, because I don't know that the market really wants a server CPU. As you point out, uh, I, I do not argue with the massive success of ARM in the sort of the XPU market. And in fact, it looks like ARM cores are going to be basically everywhere in the future disaggregated uh, server solution. Uh, but will these cores be a CPU? I, I just don't know. Now, the only thing that gives me hope is I would like to point out that uh, Qualcomm is a member of the CXL consortium. And frankly, uh, they could very well roll out a CXL CPU platform based on Nuvia. And that very well could find its way into a future server architecture. But uh, that's a lot of coulds and not a lot of wills. So I guess let's hold off and see where Qualcomm takes this thing. But for now, not too excited about this announcement. Yeah, well, one of the things that could happen and definitely will happen are some of the cool things that we've got coming up. And Stephen, the first one is just right around the corner for you. Absolutely. We're headed to VMware Explore uh, next week. Uh, we will be there uh, all week long uh, attending uh, analyst uh, briefings and uh, press briefings, uh, enjoying the parties like our friends at VM Underground. Uh, and as well as uh, some of the uh, other uh, ancillary things that happen at uh, VMware events like vBrownBag, the CTO Advisor Road Trip, and yes, Tech Field Day. So stay tuned for a live broadcast of Pure Storage on Monday and NetApp on Tuesday from VMware Explore next week. Just go to techfieldday.com to see those videos. And then after you take a little bit of a breather from the great coverage that we're going to have at VMware Explorer, make sure you tune in the next week, uh, September 7th through the 9th, for Networking Field Day. We're bringing you another exciting, fully loaded event with a great group of delegates and a wonderful group of presenters. Um, you can find the whole list of both of those at techfieldday.com, as well as check out the schedule for the presentations. We're going to be hearing from some very familiar companies that you've talked to in the past, like Juniper and Cisco. And we're even going to be hearing from some new companies like Graphient. And I can't wait to hear what they're up to. And I know that there's a lot of exciting buzz in the community about some of their solutions. Speaking of buzz in the community, we're all about the community here at The Rundown. And we come to you every Wednesday uh, around 1230 Eastern time. So make sure you set your watch, uh, grab a bite to eat, and join us for a rundown of the weekly news with maybe just a little bit of humor thrown in. Um, if you would prefer to catch us a little bit later, maybe in audio form as you're uh, working through your documentation or maybe cleaning the house, you can subscribe to us in your favorite podcast platform of choice. Just look for Gestalt IT Rundown. If you do, please leave us a like or a rating or even a review. Let people know what they're in for, that you know I'm the straight man and Steven's the funny one. 
And uh, that way people won't be surprised whenever they listen to the rundown, or maybe they'll be pleasantly surprised and encourage more people to listen to us. We should be back next week with a great lineup of stories. And if there's something happening that you'd like us to take a look at, please make sure you tweet at Gestalt IT and use the hashtag rundown, and we'll definitely include it and give you a shout out. But until next week, for Stephen Foskett and myself, Tom Hollingsworth, and you wonderful people out there in our community, take care of yourselves, and we will see you soon.